to the second debate of the 2020 China Power Debate Series. I'm Bonnie Glazer, Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Thanks to all of you for joining us today virtually. In 1984, Margaret Thatcher and Zhao Ziyang signed a joint declaration to settle the future of Hong Kong after the expiration of Britain's lease over the city in 1997. And the treaty provided for Hong Kong to retain a high degree of autonomy, which included the preservation of its distinct political, socioeconomic, and legal arrangements for 50 years. These arrangements put into practice Deng Xiaoping's one country, two systems principle. This year in July, Beijing passed a national security law, which prohibits what Beijing calls secession, subversion, terrorism, and collusion with foreign forces in Hong Kong. And since the law was passed, um, there have been arrests of uh, pro-democracy voices uh, from uh, many different communities, journalists, students, um, and uh, Hong Kong's legislative council, some members have been forced to step down. And as a result, some people have argued that one country, two systems is dead in Hong Kong. But others argue that one country, two systems is not dead because Hong Kong was promised and continues to operate with a high level of autonomy, but not full autonomy. So we're going to debate this proposition today. One country, two systems in Hong Kong is dead. But before I introduce our speakers, I'd like to ask our viewers to cast votes, either for or against the proposition. So that over the last three days, we have been conducting the same poll on Twitter. We got a total then of 728 votes. And uh, the final tally of that uh, vote was 83.7%, uh, you can see agree, and 16.3% uh, disagree. So that was the final tally of our three-day poll on Twitter. I'll tell you all though that we wanted to promote this by uh, identifying Hong Kong and the UK uh, as places where maybe uh, we could get more votes for this proposition. And uh, Twitter refused to allow us to promote it, saying it was too political. Uh, our intention, of course, is not to be political. <laughs> our intention actually is to provide some logic and understanding uh, behind this issue of what is taking place in Hong Kong. So let's just show finally what the results are of our live poll right now. So we have 73% uh, agree and 27% disagree. So we'll close the poll and then at the end of the debate, um, I hope you'll all stick around and vote just one more time so we can see whether uh, that has changed. Okay, so this is how our event will run over the next hour and 15 minutes. Both speakers have a maximum of 15 minutes to present their initial remarks. And then after they make their arguments, each will have five minutes to respond to the other speaker. And then we'll take questions from viewers Please send in your questions. All of them should be directly pertinent to the proposition so that the answers enrich the debate and help our understanding of the arguments. And then again, following the Q&A, we'll just quickly take a final poll. And with that, I am going to turn the floor over to Danny Russell, 
to argue in support of the proposition, one country, two systems in Hong Kong is dead. Hi, Bonnie. Thanks very much for having me. And before I begin, let me say how pleased I am to join Regina Ip uh, in the discussion. Uh, we've known each other over the years. I've learned a lot from her. She's played a very important role, of course, in Hong Kong's modern history, and, and I'm sure she'll do a superb job in representing her point of view. Uh, when the poll first came out on the screen earlier, uh, at 100%, I was going to joke that the motion sounded uh, a lot like uh, what you see in the National People's Congress, but I'm relieved that it, <laughs> the numbers evened out a little bit. So the proposition is that one country, two systems is dead. Now, don't let the word dead throw you. Uh, it doesn't mean that Hong Kong is dead. Nobody's suggesting that hope is dead, that the economy is dead. But what the facts reveal is, is just that Beijing's policy of tolerating a separate, uh, highly autonomous second system of governance, the Hong Kong system, that tolerance has evaporated uh, and the second system has been fatally compromised. You know, Deng Xiaoping's policy we know was to permit Hong Kong to maintain the integrity of the existing system, the liberal legal and political system apart from that of the mainland uh, and to allow the people of Hong Kong to govern their own affairs. Deng repeatedly assured the world that you know, the Chinese people of Hong Kong have the ability to run the affairs of Hong Kong. The central government won't interfere in, in the daily affairs of the special administrative region. Uh, Beijing isn't gonna assign officials to the government uh, there. Um, he gave a speech to the drafting committee of the basic law uh, in which he said, Hong Kong will be administered by the people of Hong Kong. That won't change. Uh, the administrators will be elected by the people there. Some of them should be on the left. Some of them should be on the right. And preferably a large number should be middle of the rotors. Okay. So for all intents and purposes, when you look at Hong Kong, you look at the Legislative Council, that's, that's defunct. It's dead. So if we unpack this system that Deng agreed to, it's a system of local autonomy. It's a system with separation of powers. It's a system in which the people of Hong Kong were guaranteed very substantial and very specific rights and freedoms. The key here is the 1984 Sino-British Declaration, which by the way is an international treaty registered with the UN. It explicitly stipulates the rights and freedoms that will be ensured under Hong Kong's system, not just at first, but for 50 years after reversion. And those include specifically freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly and association, travel, et cetera, freedom of religion, academic freedom, labor rights, the right to strike. So when we talk about the second of the two systems in the one country, two systems slogan. These are the, the rights and freedoms that we're talking about. In addition to that, the, the basic law, uh, effectively the constitution of Hong Kong uh, enacted in 1990, 
sets out that the ultimate aim is universal suffrage. It commits to maintain the British style common law system, to apply international human rights covenants, and to guarantee Hong Kong the high degree of autonomy uh, and ensure that it enjoys executive, legislative, and independent judicial power, unquote. Uh, so we're talking autonomy, self-rule, the ability of a state or a region to govern itself. So the proposition uh, on the table is that this autonomous second system in Hong Kong is effectively dead. And I'm not a doctor, but you know, death occurs when an organism's vital functions have ceased to operate. You know, the heart, the brain, the lungs, the liver, whatever. By way of analogy, I'd say that that let the legislative council, LegCo, the representative uh, body, that's kind of the beating heart of Hong Kong system. You maybe to torture the metaphor the Hong Kong authority and its chief executive function is its, its brain. Uh, the judiciary is, I don't know, I'm trapped in this metaphor now. <laughs> Let's call it the immune system. It protects the organism from toxins and infections and so on. Uh, the rights, the freedoms stipulated in the joint declaration, okay, that's what breathes, pumps oxygen into the system, the lungs. So join me in a, autopsy here. Let's look to see if we can find vital signs in uh, the areas that made Hong Kong system different than the mainland system in the first place. So how about the heart, the legislative self-governance? Well, for starters, the promise of, of steady movement, uh, progress towards universal suffrage and selecting all the members of LegCo, that's gone, that's flatlined, right? But even more serious is that uh, recently, as you mentioned, Bonnie, the, the Chinese National People's Congress, NPC, inserted itself directly into LegCo to disqualify four of its lawmakers in Hong Kong. And not only did that bypass Hong Kong's system, the rules for removing uh, LegCo members in the basic law, but the NPC deliberately invoked the PRC constitution, not Hong Kong's basic law uh, as justification. It basically declared unlimited legal authority to intervene at will in Hong Kong without reference to the basic law. I'd call that a cardiac arrest, let's say, for legislative autonomy. But at a minimum, you have to admit that this today is just not the separate Hong Kong legislative system that differentiates Hong Kong from the mainland and that Deng Xiaoping pledged to sustain. It's, it's looking pretty much like the mainland system instead. And what about uh, the chief executive and self-governance? Well, you know, as I mentioned, in terms of selecting the chief executive, uh, the failure to move towards universal suffrage is, is at least as, as acute. Regina herself is, is the victim of 
the inequities, inequities in the election committee system. Uh, otherwise she would have become the chief executive. And in terms of the chief executive's operations, well, you know, you really don't have to look much further than the way that the immensely consequential national security law was developed and was passed. Namely, it was done secretly in Beijing without consultation uh, with the Hong Kong authorities, certainly not significant consultation if there was any. And look also at things like the demonstrated need for the chief executive to go to Beijing to, to ask for approval, prior approval uh, for things like her annual policy address. So, you know, the brain of the Hong Kong system, the independent executive authority, it's not functioning the way it should. And at a minimum, this isn't the self-governing administrative system that differentiated Hong Kong from the mainland. The brainwaves are coming from Beijing. What about the judiciary? Arguably, that's the very essence of what makes Hong Kong, Hong Kong, right? Isn't that system still working? Haven't judges continued to rule against the government in contrast to the mainland? Well, you know, uh, a blow doesn't have to kill instantly to be fatal, right? Uh, and there's a fatal blow uh, in the national security law, uh, a fatal blow to Hong Kong's judicial independence. It's not just that now uh, Beijing law supersedes Hong Kong law in Hong Kong. It's not just that the national security law provides for selecting good judges, preferred judges to try cases and for blacklisting other judges or even removing Hong Kong defendants to the mainland for trial. And it's not merely that judges with the wrong views have been pushed off the bench or have been threatened. The lethality of the national security law is that it, it bypasses the courts entirely. Uh, it, it makes extrajudicial rulings possible with no possibility of legal appeal. The obvious case in point is the MPC's decision that I mentioned to reach into LegCo and expel the four members. That act precluded judicial review. It violated the requirements of the basic law. And you, know, you also see this syndrome in the fact that Beijing has introduced both a central government office in Hong Kong and a, and a special central government committee, both of which are immune from all Hong Kong laws, uh, both of which are immune from any judicial review. So my point is that this is just not the independent judicial system that made Hong Kong different from the mainland. And it's on a track to reproducing the, PR, the PRC's kind of rule bylaw system as well. Then you look at some of the freedoms, uh, spent a lot of time on it, but freedom of speech. I mean, protesters violated the national security law by holding up blank sheets of paper and then were arrested. You know, that's Kafka wrote that. A woman was arrested for holding a, a printed document that had One Nation, One Hong Kong printed on the cover. Uh, speech about the status of Hong Kong, Tibet, Xinjiang, Taiwan is criminalized. 
it's a crime to quote unquote provoke hatred toward the government or to call for international sanctions. Uh, you hear on the radio commentators in Hong Kong uh, being interviewed and saying, I can't answer that question because it could subject me to a 10 year prison sentence. And similarly, freedom of the press, you know, look at the raid on Apple Daily, the arrest of Jimmy Lai, his sons, executives, the delay and denial of visas for foreign journalists. Um, consider the warning to RTHK and other media that they better run positive stories on the national security law. Um, or Carrie Lam's sort of taunt to journalists that um, if they want to be safe, uh, they should give her 100% guarantee that they won't commit any offense to the national security law under their reporting. And, and this is a law that's so vague, it, it criminalizes undefined murky red lines. Academic freedom, same phenomenon uh, with the expulsion of Benny Tai, the forbidding of teachers from any discussion in class about things like uh, the Hong Kong independence question, public libraries uh, pulling books from circulation that were written by pro-democracy uh, people. The point here is that what we're witnessing is, is just no longer the separate Hong Kong system that retained the rights and the freedoms promised in the joint uh, declaration uh, that made Hong Kong different than the mainland. More and more, this is the mainland system. So look, the, the basic law commits to maintaining the British style uh, common law system that was in place before the handover. It commits to honoring and implementing the international human rights and uh, political rights covenants. The basic law stipulates the mainland uh, departments of government cannot interfere in Hong Kong that mainland laws cannot be applied in the city except under very specific limited circumstances, that maintaining public order is a local responsibility. And what we've seen is that by instead taking direct control, something that the PRC refrained from doing uh, over the years until now, Beijing's fundamentally changed the constitutional order in Hong Kong. Uh, it was, it has been a liberal one, no matter what its flaws. And now as um, Michael Davis says, uh, it's operating under a new national security constitution. Beijing has effectively co-opted the Hong Kong authority, neutered the LegCo, backtrack on universal suffrage, curtailed the power and the independence of Hong Kong's court, restricted academic freedom, inserted patriotic education in its place, introduced totalitarian style surveillance by mainland secret police. Even if there were perfect justifications for all of these actions, the fact is that they've shifted the framework with the mainland from two systems to one. It's not the death of Hong Kong, but it is the death of the system that Deng Xiaoping uh, agreed to. Uh, Beijing's tolerance for a liberal system in a highly autonomous Hong Kong has ended, and with it has ended the one country, two systems framework. So I'll stop here and uh, listen with great interest to what Regina has to say. 
Great, thank you, Danny. Okay, Regina, if we'll turn to you to argue against the proposition that one country, two systems in Hong Kong is dead. Well, uh, first of all, thank you, Bonnie, for having me. And um, it's great to take part in this discussion with uh, Danny. You know. um, I don't think, of course, I disagree that one country, two systems in Hong Kong is dead. I think it has simply been grossly misunderstood and misinterpreted. Since so many references have been made to the Sino-British Joint Declaration um, by Denny and by the British government several times in recent months, I'd like to clarify, explain, uh, say a few words about my understanding of the Joint Declaration. I'm holding in my hand an authentic copy, a historic copy of the white paper published by the British government in September 1984. At that time, I was a small potato in Hong Kong government, but I did take part in the negotiations on some occasions as a backbench expert on nationality, travel documents, that sort of thing. You know, this is a white paper. The white paper introduces the joint declaration. The joint declaration itself is only 1,183 words. The two first two paragraphs are a pair of link statements by the Chinese and British government. China saying that I will resume exercise of sovereignty over Hong Kong as from 1 July 1997. And Britain saying that I will return Hong Kong to China as from 1 July 1997. And then, and then uh, China spells out its basic policies towards Hong Kong in 12 full points. In paragraph four, Britain says, my responsibility for Hong Kong will end on 30th June, you know, 1997. So the British government should recognize that they have no locus on Hong Kong affairs right now because their responsibility has ended. And in the white paper, I reread the white paper. It's interesting that uh, a few months into the negotiation, which started in early 1984, uh, the British government recognized that there's no possibility of re re retaining, extending the rule on Hong Kong beyond 1997. So the British government said that they would aim for arrangements that would maintain the stability and prosperity of Hong Kong on 20th April 1984, then British Foreign Secretary, Sir Geoffrey Howe, I remember him very well, he visited Hong Kong many times, he explained to the British people that the UK government hoped to be able to arrive at a set of agreements that would ensure for Hong Kong a high level of autonomy under Chinese sovereignty. I have to stress, under Chinese sovereignty, you know that will preserve Hong Kong's way of life and ensure our prosperity and stability. So I must explain what Deng Xiaoping and his successors promised to us is not self-rule or home rule, but a high level of autonomy, which by definition is not complete autonomy under Chinese sovereignty. Um, the Chinese Beijing government has been referring to their constitution quite frequently more frequently in recent years because it felt it needed to remind us that 
the Hong Kong SAR, just as the Macau SARs, were established mm -hmm. only because we were they were authorized to do so under Article 31 of China's PRC. All the powers we have, including the establishment of the SAR, that we are our powers are authorized by the Beijing government. China being a highly centralized, unitary government state, unlike your federal system, it has no devolution of power to Hong Kong or Macau. All the powers we have, whether vested in the executive, legislative, or judicial branch, branches, are authorized by the Beijing government. This is in um, Article 12 of the Basic Law. But it also says, Article 20 also says that, um, let me read out Article 20. Article 20 says, the Hong Kong SAR may, Article 12 says the Hong Kong SAR is, um, the Hong Kong SAR shall be a local administrative region of the PRC, which shall enjoy a high degree of autonomy and come directly under the central people's government. So we don't have self-rule. We never have self-rule or Scottish home rule, that sort of thing. But Article 20 also says that the Hong Kong SAR may enjoy other powers granted to it by the National People's Congress, the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress or the Central People's Government. And this is what has happened when Beijing <clears throat> enacted the national security law end of, um, end of um, June, it gave us extra powers. You know, Article 43 of the national security law gave um, the Hong Kong government extra powers, uh, extra enforcement powers, so that we can bring the turmoil, which has rocked Hong Kong, which has de devastated Hong Kong in the past year to a close. The, those are powers actually already enjoyed by our government agencies for various purposes, like um, um, come, um, seizing, not allowing people access to their travel documents. This is the power already available under our prevention of bribery ordinance. Um, investigating the, the, the mm -hmm. funds that have been used by the organizations involved in last year's uh, mm -hmm. protests, uh, this sort of investigative powers is already available under our um, legislation countering terrorism or um, money laundering under our organized and serious crimes ordinance. And these are powers that many law enforcement agencies already have because we did not have, our government did not have sufficient powers to deal with last year's riots, because there was a lot of online mobilization. You know, uh, there were well-known websites with lots of groups um, publishing instigatory messages, organizing mobilization, um, turning out a lot of young people on the streets, targeting the police, targeting Chinese businesses, any restaurants, any banks, any shops that did business with China were vandalized. Our, li our lives were devastated. I couldn't go out. I was mobbed in Central Ones. People pour water on me. Fortunately, it was only water, not corrosive acid. 
There was one innocent citizen who argued with the protesters and was set on fire, and one cleaner killed with a brick. This sort of situation was unprecedented since our reunification. And as you may know, two universities, the Chinese University and the Polytechnic University, um, the protesters laid siege to these universities. And on their campus, 8,000 bottles of petroleum were found, 800 bottles of liquefied petroleum gas, 1,000 bottles of petrol, 700 bottles of inflammable chemicals, and 600 plus weapons. Our government did not have enough enforcement powers to deal with that sort of situation. And we were unable to bring, uh, bring law and order back to our society until the protest subsided earlier this year because of COVID and new social distancing uh, regulations came into place, but there were still scattered protests. So eventually Beijing had to do something, you know, and they explained more than once, they had to make national security legislation on our behalf because we failed to do so. We have a duty under Article 23 of the Basic Law, as you probably know, I dealt with that when I was Secretary for Security. Under Article 23, the Hong Kong SAR has a constitutional obligation to enact laws on its own to prohibit seven national security offenses, which are quite standard national security offenses around the world. Treason, secession, sedition, subversion, theft of state secrets, prohibition of foreign political organizations from conducting political activities in Hong Kong, and prohibition of political organizations from establishing ties with the foreign political organizations or bodies. Actually, in my time, only, I only dealt with five. We already had treason, uh, theft of state secrets, espionage on our statute books. We inherited those offenses from the British, from our British rulers, which is clear evidence that there's no conflict between protection of fundamental rights and freedoms and protection of national security. These offenses are quite standard around the world. You know. For example, Australia in recent years enacted 80 pieces of legislation, not only against terrorism, but also against foreign interference. They have the Foreign Interference Act of 2018. They have the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act of 2018, uh, which also prohibits publication of uh, news, opinion, which are inherently harmful and makes it an offense to do things uh, that uh, um, cause intangible damage here between the relationship of the Commonwealth and other foreign states. All these wordings are broad. I have not come across any definition of national security because of the nature uh, of the danger posed by national security, the wording used by all these legislation has to be brought. Coming back to some of the problems uh, Danny raised about Hong Kong, in the past 23 years, we have actually done well. We still remain the freest economy according to ranking by Heritage Foundation. 
and the Fraser Institute by a very narrow margin. I know we might lose it, but it means we have still done very well. Um, we are ranked 16 uh, in terms of rule of law by the World Justice Project. Uh, under the UN Development Program, even in 2019, we ranked fourth in terms of human development, which testified to the fact that since the reunification, as Danny suggested, Beijing has truly respected our separate systems. You know, rights and freedoms have been fully safeguarded under one country, two systems. What drove the change that made Danny so uncomfortable? The riots of last year, those unprecedented riots, young people unfurling British and American flags, shouting revolution of our time, Hong Kong independence, the only way out, attacking the central Beijing's uh, liaison office in Hong Kong, throwing our national flag into the harbor, trembling on our national flag. These are not um, provocations that many governments could tolerate, but Beijing did nothing. In fact, I think there were many people in Hong Kong hoping that Beijing would unleash the PLA. They stayed in the barracks just like in 2014 during Occupy Central or what Western media call the Umbrella Revolution, people were actually hoping the PLA would be unleashed from the barracks, mm -hmm. which will immediately spell the death of one country, mm -hmm. two systems in the eyes of the world. But Beijing refused to do that and we relied on our police. Our police were so jaded and tired that in early June, three policemen literally died of fatigue as soon as they got off duty. So Beijing had to do something because we failed to protect ourselves and we failed to protect our country. So they enacted the new national security legislation. I'm sure there was a consultation uh, between the mm -hmm. Beijing government and our mm -hmm. administration and our law enforcement agencies. Now as for enforcement, what has happened since then? Now, the latest statistics are that around 32 people have been arrested for suspicion. Uh, suspected connection with national security offenses, but only two have been charged. And I think it will be a long time before any of them would come close to conviction. Because we have the common law system in Hong Kong. All of them will be... Um, investigated, remanded, uh, eventually charged under our system. One young person has applied for habeas corpus, and that was dealt with by our courts. You know, universal suffrage, there is no mention of democracy in the Joint Declaration, let alone uh, universal suffrage. It is Beijing which allow us to elect our chief by consultations or elections locally without spelling out the details. The details are to be worked out by the people of Hong Kong in accordance with the principles under the basic law in a, in a gradual and orderly manner and in the light of the actual situation. In fact, I debated this with uh, Senator Rick Scott when he visited Hong Kong last year. Don't blame us for our slow progress. How long did it take the U.S. to give women the vote and give black people the vote? It is a long evolutionary process. 
and we prefer an evolutionary process and a revolutionary process. If my time is coming up, is my time coming up, Bonnie? Yes. Maybe I'll stop there and I'll take questions. Thank you. Excellent. Well, before we go to the Q&A portion, um, I am going to give each of you a maximum of five minutes uh, to respond to the other speaker. And first over to you, Danny. Thanks. Uh, well, thank you, Regina. You're a, a veteran politician with an unparalleled experience. I'm impressed by your first edition of the 1984 British White Paper. Um, and, you know, if I were arguing that Hong Kong had acquired uh, unqualified self-rule uh, and democracy in 1997, then you'd have a point. But the case that I'm making is that the autonomy and the rights that Hong Kong did have at reversion, uh, the things that were indeed promised both uh, in the joint declaration and in the basic law, uh, that those have been eroded and undermined uh, to a point where it's really an exaggeration to call it uh, the same separate system distinct from that of the mainland that it once was. You point out that Hong Kong was never promised uh, complete 100% autonomy, okay? But the national security law uh, was passed in secret. Uh, with, according to uh, most experts, no real input from Hong Kong. The National Security Laws Committee uh, acts in secret. It's completely immune from judicial review. It's not subject to Hong Kong jurisdiction, so on. So that's not autonomy, high or low. Legislators were forced out of LegCo unilaterally by Beijing. That's not autonomy, high or low. Legitimate parliamentary functions of LegCo, including the filibuster, are now being uh, considered as a violation of national security. Um, even I read in the New York Times, uh, you made the point that Beijing learned from the 2003 fiasco over the national security law that it shouldn't bother uh, consulting with LegCo. Well, it's just not credible to call that uh, autonomy, uh, high uh, or low. Um, secondly, you uh, made a very, very strong presentation arguing that the end justifies the means in terms of the national security law uh, because there were excesses in some of the demonstrations uh, and explain why Beijing was, was right to uh, snuff out uh, free speech um, and to protect it from violence or from uh, bad behavior by protesters. But the rights and the wrongs of it don't change uh, the fact that these actions have altered the system in Hong Kong. Uh, we're looking at really a, a different uh, a different arrangement. So if we if we think about the national security law, uh, what we see is that um, whatever the delights of law and order may be, 
and whatever other countries may have national security laws, um, political protests are being outlawed. Journalists covering uh, demonstrations are being targeted. Citizens are jailed for uttering seditious words. The Ministry of State Security can surveil and search the homes of Hong Kongers without approval from the judge. Whether the law was needed, whether it's a good thing, that's a different debate. Um, what is clear is that now in Hong Kong, there's one system, uh, not two. Uh, and that uh, for that reason, um, regardless of the rights and the wrongs of the national security law itself, uh, you can no longer make the case uh, that the uh, open liberal uh, system uh, is in operation. Um, you point out that the judiciary and other parts of Hong Kong society are struggling to push back. Well, so, that's what, you know, what does that mean? That it's, it's a zombie? Um, no, uh, Beijing's acceptance of a distinctly different British liberal system uh, in a highly autonomous Hong Kong has been laid to rest. It's been a death of a thousand cuts, uh, but the national security law was the, really the, the final blow. And if there is, you know, one country, two systems, anywhere to be found, uh, it's, in, it's in name only, because what we're seeing is the governing system in Hong Kong, uh, whether people like it or not, uh, increasingly as an extension of the PRC's own system. Okay, Regina, five minutes for you, please. Well, I beg to differ. I think our systems remain fundamentally intact. For example, two young activists who are well known to the international community, Joshua Wong, well known to US um, uh, legislators and you know, US government, and Agnes Chow, who is very popular in Japan, both of them have pleaded guilty to public order offenses for inciting attacks on police headquarters June of last year. And they continue to make political speeches after they pleaded guilty, before and after, even after they were uh, remanded, they still spoke to uh, the, the media about uh, Hong Kong people, at oil, don't give up the fight, that sort of thing. And my four colleagues who were for, uh, disqualified, my four co former colleagues, they have been interviewed every day by our news media, giving Hong Kong people their side of the story, you know, this sort of uh, coverage, this sort of open discussions are still going on every day. And as for our judiciary, they recently, um, a high court judge recently acquitted seven rioters, seven accused of rioting. You know, the facts are actually uh, quite straightforward. But the judge simply said he believed those seven were there just responding to a historic moment. And, um, and another high court judge uh, dismissed, um, upheld the judicial review application against the police for hiding the frontline policeman's identification numbers. Now, of course, the government could appeal against all these uh, judgments, 
but it showed that our judges, they continue to uh, carry out their duties without fear or favor in accordance with their legal considerations. There's nothing Beijing can do about it. Judges are appointed by the chief executive uh, under on recommendation of an independent commission, and they enjoy very long tenure. We recently extended their retirement age. In fact, we fattened their package. So the common law system is alive and well. As for our legislature, it had been paralyzed last year by the excessive filibuster of our colleagues who openly said that um, if they won the majority in next year's elections, uh, they would veto everything and even force the resignation of the chief executive so that they could take over. This is a really frightening scenario. This is not something Beijing or us uh, expected. You know, um, soon after, immediately after the, the reunification, we have dissenting voices in the legislature, people who are well known to the American people, Martin mm -hmm. Lee, Anson Chan, Margaret Ng, a lot of uh, distinguished lawyers, you know, they, they say good things about the Chinese Communist parties, you know, they were far from patriots, but they were, a lot, nobody uh, ever tried to lay any charges against them. But if you um, advocate separatism, if you advocate overthrow of the um, central government, that is harmful to the people of Hong Kong. That is harmful to the security of China and hurts us. You know, if last year's riots continue, Hong Kong would die an unnatural death before the two systems undergo any fundamental change. You know, we, we could not allow that to happen. As for the, the, the way Beijing enacted the legislation, you know, under, as I mentioned earlier, under Article 43 of the national security legislation, they gave our law enforcement people extra powers. This is the implementation rules. I can send you copies, you know. It's a public document. It's been published by the National Security Committee. And there are seven schedules concerning rules relating to search of premises, restriction on persons under investigation from leaving Hong Kong, rules relating to freezing of assets, removing messages from um, endangering national security and all that. In fact, I understand from the administration that all these rules were based on existing legislation, counter-terrorism legislation, counter-money laundering legislation, prevention of bribery ordinance, organized and serious crime ordinance. So you see, one country, two, is two system is not easy. It's a very challenging enterprise. It's a work in progress. And what we see happening is a coming together of the two systems. Beijing trying to protect herself in Hong Kong through common laws, through legislation based on the common laws, which would be tested in our courts. So I maintain that um, although freedom has been restricted in some areas, and this is happening around the world, whenever you have threats, when you, whether you have terrorism threats or separatism threats, you, you have to introduce new legislation to restrict freedom.
somewhat, but permissible under the ICCPR because freedom is not absolute. The international covenant on civil and political rights permits derogation in the case of emergencies where there are threats to public safety, public health, public morals, and the Beijing government and our government, they are doing no more than that. Okay, we, we now have, <clears throat> excuse me, about um, uh, 15 minutes or so for questions. And uh, I've collected some in advance and also some during our debate. So I'll ask you both to be concise so that we can get to as many of them as possible. And I'm gonna start with a question to Danny by um, an anonymous individual. Do you consider the central people's government has no role to play, uh, whether it's mediation or adjudication in a, a situation where there is a constitutional crisis such as happened last year? That's a great question and Anonymous is a very good friend of mine, so thank you. Um, um, and I'm, I'm not a lawyer and there are some terrific uh, lawyers, uh, Michael Davis, uh, Jerry Cohen, who uh, we really ought to tap into to get an authoritative answer. Um, but I, the question uh, to me as a layman is whether uh, we consider a constitutional crisis uh, a crisis of the PRC constitution or a crisis of uh, the basic law. And my understanding is that um, based on the common law principle of priority of legal interests, that uh, justices in Hong Kong will, should, and must take into consideration in reviewing a case uh, what the highest law of uh, Hong Kong stipulates. And in that case, the highest law, of course, is uh, the basic law, the constitutional law. So the short answer is, uh, to my understanding, uh, yes, the uh, courts in uh, Hong Kong uh, do have the right to uh, make constitutional uh, related rulings. As far as uh, the central authorities uh, in Beijing, now obviously there are certain areas uh, where uh, Hong Kong's rights and autonomy are circumscribed, as Regina correctly pointed out, like defense, like national security. Uh, secondly, in uh, the basic law, there are certain uh, prerogatives um, of review, and there are provisions uh, for what happens when a, uh, a law notified to the National People's Congress uh, is not accepted or considered inconsistent uh, with the basic law. Um, I think the NPC is not allowed to make uh, adjustments or amendments to the law, but they, they can send it back and effectively um, evaluate it. But Anonymous has reached the, the, the outer limits of my knowledge <laughs> on this. It's all stuff. Okay, Regina, I'm going to um, give you two questions sort of rolled together here. Uh, one is from Paul Hare from the Center for the National Interest. And he has asked you to specify 
in which areas Hong Kong still retains um, uh, administrative autonomy that distinguishes it from other uh, parts, other cities uh, or provinces or autonomous regions uh, on the mainland like uh, Tibet and Xinjiang. And the second part of this question is from Enzio Von Fiel, who is a longtime Hong Kong resident. And he asks, are you concerned that Xi Jinping's thoughts on the rule of law, which just came out um, in the past week or so, will impinge on the independence of Hong Kong's judiciary? Um, I think we are different from the rest of China. <clears throat> the key differentiating characteristic is our independent judiciary. And our chief justice explained recently that really means adjudicating adjudicated cases in accordance strictly with legal considerations, not political considerations. <coughs> that has nothing to do with separation of powers. Separation of powers is a different political concept anyway. And um, you know, the sort of constitutional issues that um, Enzo Bonfau raised and then we sort of um, tried to discuss earlier, they have been um, teased out by our courts soon after the handover. Um, our court of final appeal in one landmark case tried to say that it has the power to review the constitutionality of the decisions of the NPC. Now that's clearly, that clearly goes against uh, the PRC constitution. So the, our court of final appeal at that time led by Andrew Lee had to correct himself. The court had already corrected themselves in a, a case in 1999, in which they acknowledged that the NPC standing committee's power of interpretation originating from the Chinese constitution is in general and unqualified terms and its interpretations are binding on Hong Kong courts. In fact, decisions such as the decisions made on national security and on disqualification this year have the same status as NPCSC interpretations. And more recently in 2018, uh, again, our court of first instance upheld that the NPCSC is part of the sovereign body which authorized the establishment of the Hong Kong SAR. It exercises the will of the state and its decisions are binding on the Hong Kong SAR, including Hong Kong courts. But it doesn't mean our courts giving up its independent adjudicating power. It really means it, is, it has to continue to um, adjust and adapt itself to different legal concepts and try to continue to rule on these issues uh, within the framework of common law principles. It's not easy, it's challenging, but it's happening in Hong Kong now. <clears throat> okay, um, another question for Danny. We've had um, several questions relating to the implications for Taiwan. So I think I'll, one came from uh, Ben saying that uh, uh, doesn't this put unification for Taiwan even further off into the future? And one from Gary Sands from Highway West Capital Advisors. What are the implications of Hong Kong for Taiwan, um, where Beijing continues to aspire to implement 
one country, two systems? Well, um, you know, there are famous uh, quotes from Deng Xiaoping making clear uh, his intent and expectation uh, that uh, the success of maintaining a highly autonomous separate system in Hong Kong uh, served as a model for Taiwan. And uh, more recently in the January 29 uh, speech by, uh, 2019 speech by Xi Jinping on Taiwan, uh, he uh, made a pitch for uh, one country, two systems as the uh, operating model. I think uh, most analysts credit that in large part for Tsai Ing-wen's decisive victory in the uh, presidential elections. Uh, and without a doubt, there was a, uh, a massive rejection among uh, the majority of the voters uh, in Taiwan of that idea, largely because of what they have witnessed in the uh, heavy-handed uh, tactics of Beijing uh, in Hong Kong, uh, prompted as, as Regina pointed out by uh, the protests. I mean, it certainly cannot be argued that there is a significant number of people in Taiwan who look at the situation in Hong Kong today and look at the state of uh, the one country, two system commitments in the basic law and say, that's what we want. You, don't, you just don't hear that. That's um, a self-evident point. Of course, it's one of uh, one factor in a uh, myriad of, of complex political, social, and economic considerations that are uh, steadily altering the, the chemistry in terms of political attitudes on Taiwan. Uh, and the strains in the cross-strait relations, as well as, of course, the strains in the U.S.-China relationship have uh, compounded those difficulties. Um, if I could take one step back on the issue of uh, the judiciary in uh, Hong Kong that Regina addressed, I would, I would just add to her list of uh, citations that when a Hong Kong court overturned the government emergency ban, um, Chinese officials released a statement um, saying that Hong Kong courts had no power to rule on the constitutionality of the city's laws. Um, and the restrictions on judges are, are expanding. There was a case last week uh, where under Hong Kong law, not the national security law, prosecutors announced that special judges now need to be appointed uh, for the case. So you have the director of public prosecutions handing in his resignations. Uh, you have an office within his own office over which he has no control. And you've got the uh, senior uh, official and uh, mainland official um, in Hong Kong giving a speech uh, saying that judicial reform is underway. In, Hong Kong. So I, I think there's a, a, a huge question about what that judicial reform is. Um, is it uh, 
what we've seen on the mainland where judicial reform means cleansing the judiciary and making it politically uh, compliant, you know, where patriotic judges execute the will of the party. Um, so I think that it is quite clear that the uh, important and much prized uh, independence of Hong Kong's uh, judiciary uh, is dramatically eroded. Next question for you, Gina, from uh, Ben at the University of North Carolina. You noted that One Country, Two Systems is a work in progress. Has Hong Kong's leadership identified any provisions of the national security law that should be reworked after observing implementation? Well, these are very early days. Um, as I said, around 30 people have been arrested. Only two have been charged. And they, these two cases are nowhere close to being uh, brought before the court for trial. You know, We don't know. We don't know, honestly, we don't know whether the provisions will stand up in our courts. You know, uh, if the government won in a won the prosecution, I'm sure the defendant would appeal, and the defendant would probably get legal aid. Um, the appeal can go through all levels of our courts. You know, that will take two to three years. That's why our government said recently. In fact, the Secretary for Security, John Lee, said recently when people asked him. Uh, are you going to reactivate Article 23 and introduce local legislation to fill the other loopholes? He said that we have to wait and see how the new national security law operates before we know whether there are other loose ends to tie up. So the answer is, I don't know. These are early days. <clears> hey, <throat> okay, back to you, Danny. Um from a Hong Konger, another anonymous. <laughs> Some persons insist that independence is the only way forward uh, for the future of Hong Kong. What is your opinion of this fear? Uh, <laughs> um, I was gonna say no one and I can't say no one, but certainly uh, major governments uh, don't dispute uh, the one country uh, part of the equation. Uh, Beijing's sovereignty in Hong Kong is uh, acknowledged. Uh, and that's not what's in contention. What's in contention is whether uh, Beijing is honoring and living up to the two systems uh, part of the equation in the basic law and in the joint declaration. And I've uh, made the case why I think that it hasn't. Um, it's as a as an economic matter, uh, as a you know geopolitical matter. Um, I don't know what independence for Hong Kong would look like, and I certainly don't know uh, how independence for Hong Kong would be uh, arrived at. But I think that the uh, the specter of secession uh, and the sort of nightmare picture that many in Beijing uh, have painted of what could happen, what could go wrong, uh, is used as a shield by some to 
uh, justify in some cases and obscure in others, uh, the measures that are being taken to erode uh, Hong Kong's autonomy, erode its uh, judicial and, and administrative system. Regina's correctly made the point that this is still early days for uh, the national security law. Um, but while it may be early days, uh, the indicators are not suggesting that uh, things are moving in the right direction. And so you can't really describe it as a work in progress if uh, the trend lines are pointing towards a worsening and a, de a deterioration of rights. Uh, that's not progress. So it's early days, yes. I mean, she cited Joshua Wong and Agnes Chow's cases. The four legislators um, are still able to speak publicly, although, as I mentioned, uh, not to speak freely uh, publicly because of the liabilities in the national security law. Some writers have been acquitted, yeah. So what that means is that the crackdown is not yet complete. Um, but remember, uh, the national security law supersedes Hong Kong's courts. It's exempt from judicial review. It creates an office with unchecked authority and it's introduced mainland secret police. It's taken a page out of the East German Stasi uh, handbook by soliciting informers and uh, encouraging anonymous accusations. So maybe that's a good thing in the view of some people but okay, that's not the issue. The issue is that this is not Hong Kong's system. This is the mainland's system. And the deputy at the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office himself said that the purpose of the national security law is to, is to move the equation in Hong Kong over to the one country side. So in that sense, the focus from Beijing is uh, fully on uh, sovereignty and the exercise of sovereignty and not on the maintenance of uh, two systems. One final question uh, for you, Regina, which is from me. Um, is there a specific development uh, that might take place in Hong Kong that would cause you to change your position? to argue that indeed one country, two systems is dead. You, know, you mentioned in your uh, initial remarks that some people thought that if the PLA had been released from its barracks, that that would have led uh, to really the end of one country, two systems. So how do you, you view that question? Is there one thing in particular that if it occurred in Hong Kong that would cause you to conclude that one country, two systems is dead? I mentioned the PLA because um, I sense there was a lot of uh, speculation, um, even back in 2014 during Occupy Central, that there would be a repeat of chairman in Hong Kong, you know, because of student protests. <coughs> in 2014, as in last year, the young people led the charge. If the PLA were let loose, there will be accusations of a repeat of Cameron in Hong Kong. Um, I never thought that would happen. You know, actually currently, now in Hong Kong, we need the support of our country more than ever. 
you know, earlier we discussed COVID, our spike may be a dream to Daniel, but it means our borders have to be closed and our lifeline is cut off. So I think more and more people, in fact, the joint declaration, the negotiations back in the 1980s was about sovereignty. In my opinion, we can only maintain our two systems if we do not pose any danger to the rest of China. If our people do not challenge their sovereignty, their security, and their dignity, you know. So in my opinion, you know, I'm happy working. I have worked with my British uh, colleagues. I'm now working with my Chinese friends. I have no problem working with them. I don't think there would be anything that would um, cause so much concern to me that I would pronounce the end of one country. In fact, there are large numbers of people in Hong Kong because of the COVID situation, the help we've been getting from the mainland, that we want a more perfect union. So now we're just gonna take a minute to uh, vote again, and I'll recap our voting uh, prior to uh, the debate. We had 54 votes that were cast, and we ended up actually with a few more that came in. So we had 67% agree and 33% uh, disagree. So we're gonna vote again. These are the instructions on your screen. It's a two-step process. If you do it on your phone, you text CSIS to the number 2233, and then you get a text back telling you that you've joined our, our event. And then you text A for agree and B uh, if you disagree. And then if you do it online, uh, you go to poll e, uh, EV, uh, P-O-L-L-E-V dot com um, uh, slash C-S-I-S. And then you'll just see the proposition on your screen and you can click on either agree or uh, disagree. And again, we are voting on the proposition. One country, two systems uh, in Hong Kong is dead. Um, I'm going to give you all about 30 seconds uh, to please enter uh, your votes, and we'll see what the the final uh, thing is. I think we should we should come back in another maybe six months and <laughs> or a year and do it again and uh, see whether we have more information and data uh, because I think both. Uh, uh, Danny Russell and Regina have agreed that we are um, in early days as we are seeing the implementation of the national security law in Hong Kong. Um, and there are uh, many developments going forward that I think will shape how we think about the future of Hong Kong and the future of one country, two systems and the commitment uh, to autonomy in Hong Kong that was made uh, by, uh, by Beijing. So we still have votes coming in. Um, it doesn't tell us, we have to choose between the numbers and the percentages. So uh, we are putting up the percentages, but uh, I will know afterwards the total number of votes. Uh, and uh, right now we have 69% agree and 31% disagree. You know, it's almost the same as it was <laughs> before the uh, the debate, which is actually unusual. You know, in our prior years of doing 
this series, on a rare occasion, we have a complete flip. Um, I think oh, maybe one or two, we've had uh, just uh, uh, the majority go from uh, agreeing with the proposition to disagree. And usually it's a, it is a small change, uh, but occasionally we have a complete flip. We obviously don't have uh, a total shift uh, this time. We now have 70 votes total. So we have uh, more than we had initially, uh, but we still have uh, votes coming in. But uh, it does look like there was a little bit of a decrease in agree and uh, an increase in, in disagree, but, but not a huge change. So um, we've reached the end uh, of our debate and our voting. I want to thank all of our viewers for joining us, for sending in really terrific questions. And uh, of course, thank uh, Danny Russell and uh, Regina Ip for really outstanding presentations of their position uh, for uh, an, an issue that is extremely um, important uh, and worth watching going forward. The entire world, I think, uh, cares deeply about the future of Hong Kong, as does its, uh, its residents. So thank you again, and I hope you will all join us uh, for, our for our third debate, that is China will exploit uh, the COVID-19 pandemic to shift the geopolitical balance of power in its favor. Thank you all for joining us.